to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician and a CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today we're continuing our series with Dr. Eric Lee discussing EMR implementation. Now we're going to pick up in part two, talking about clinical decision support. So while we're talking about the build, let's talk a little bit about clinical decision support, because that really does fall into the line of the CMIO and the provider informaticists. They're going to be engaged around this. Every vendor has, at this point, a collection of alerts. Maybe they'll give you access to some order sets, or they'll open up the community library so you can see what others have. So... How much do you take right from the vendor and how much is really dependent upon local flavor? You end up having to compromise a little bit on both. I think you'd be very hard pressed to willingly accept all of the clinical decision support that's offered from whatever vendor. You or your provider informaticist is going to start looking at it saying, well, so what's the logic behind this? Or what are the set of rules in which this decision support rule or alert will fire, what's going to trigger it? So those are the questions you are always asking yourself. And if you find that it's going to be not discriminate enough or not discerning enough, you're really going to either put that on the back burner or you're going to work on refining it so that it does fire in a meaningful fashion. I think you'll find with whatever vendor you are going with, there are a lot of alerts built into the system. And it'll be up to you as the either the CMIO or if you're fortunate enough to have provider informaticists to really start looking at that library of alerts in which you can decide or make a decision as to what you wish to go live with and what you may wish to put a hold on in terms of developing or putting it into the EHR at a later date. I see where someone who's really well-intentioned they're going to have some quality something in their title and they're going to come along and saying we have to make sure every one of our patients is on aspirin who's had an AMI and we have to have an alert that hits the doctor every 10 minutes to make sure that they're ordering it and they're well intentioned and the vendor has that particular alert and I think the tendency is to say okay they're right, we all know we have to do this, and they turn it on without necessarily understanding, do we even have a problem with that in our organization or not? What's your experience there? Yeah, I think there sometimes is that sentiment where people are focused on ensuring that certain types of alerts are in place. I think really you're looking at it, what we had done in our organization was look at the entire library of alerts and did a first pass through all of the alerts and considering what we would go live with. For the alerts that are in which you're on the fence or you're not completely sure, because no one could be an expert in everything, you're seeking out those subject matter experts or those physicians that are really well-versed in the evidence-based uh, guidelines or how you want your organization to practice. and asking for their input to weigh in on what are really the objectives that we need to focus on, what's been hurting us as an organization, and which alerts are the ones that we need to focus on going live with 
so that it does make more sense and that it is firing in a meaningful fashion from day one to go live. So this is my two cents of advice for, for those out there. There is going to be this wonderful notion that we'll get back to it. We'll later take a look and see what alerts are firing and try to adjust it. And there are some organizations that are really good at it, but to be honest, there's probably more that are not. Think about what's going to happen after go live and the stress of implementation. It'll be six months before you get a chance to get stable and be like, okay, now we've got time to go re-review our library and see how our alerts are working. Fantastic if you have that governance in place. I see more often than not these things get turned on, left on, and you end up with people just kind of living with it. That's, I, I guess, hope I'm not coming off jaded, but I think I'm seeing that as being more common. The resources aren't there. You're moving on to the next big shiny object, which you want to get done, and you never go back to go I, ahead and look at those. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, it happens to the best of us, no matter how good our intentions may be. You're not able to revisit every single BPA or alert that you turned on and revisit them no matter what your intentions are. So let's go into the next phase here. You've got your build done. What have you done around testing that's been successful that you want to highlight? So with testing, what I found to be important was looking at your ancillary services, which may include lab and radiology. I think if you're um, part of a large inpatient organization, you're going to find that you have the lab and radiology services that are integrated within your healthcare system, and you may be employing or implementing that solution that's offered by the vendor in an integrated fashion. So you will still have to test, but it may be less of an issue. If you're part of an ambulatory organization in which you don't employ these services, I think this is where testing becomes even more critical and definitely a need for special focus when you're getting ready to implement. So I'll give you an example of both organizations I've been a part of. We contract with Quest Diagnostics for lab tests. And it's interesting in that uh, Quest will do the functional testing and they'll do the integration testing with your IT team. But in terms of a clinician, I place this lab test and I wanna see the test come back across the interface and I'm ordering a TSH with a reflex to free T4 and I want you to give me a, a TSH value that's either extremely high or extremely low and so that it reflexes to the free T4. It may end up being that you don't get that reflex and you have to start digging into why and start working with the quest and figuring out why didn't you send me a reflex test and then they'll say, oh, well, we just free text it in there. So I think you really need to make sure that it starts working and then pay a, um, close attention to it after you implement. Um, with radiology as well, I think the same thing happens in terms of establishing the interface. Anytime you're looking at a third-party application or a vendor, you first of all, you need to know, do we have an existing agreement with this vendor or is it tied to my current EHR and is it something that I'm going to have to negotiate? The second thing is then, 
let's say I am establishing an interface and or we have an existing interface, we have to then switch it to the to point to the new EHR that you're implementing and start the testing all over again. Which order in the order catalog of your new system is going to tie to the vendor's order so that when you do a one-to-one -one mapping across the interface and you send tests, you get the test results back as expected. How about usability testing? Do you have providers sit down and go through an admission workflow or look at that order that came back and see, do they have to scroll to get to the value or is the value presented right to them the first time? You would really hope that these things would come from the vendor really well perfected, but they're not always that way. What have you done in usability testing? Agreed. This is key for a provider informaticist to start logging into the domain or the playground or sandbox, as you may call it, and start performing certain workflows that they're familiar with to try to determine, is this right? Is this order firing in, or is it firing an alert that should not be firing? You can test multiple workflows from the start of a clinic visit all the way to the end or the start of an admission all the way to I've placed my orders. You may want to work on a discharge patient order or getting ready to send the patient out from the clinic in terms of working with the after visit summary and making sure the patient instructions are populating within the after visit summary. You may want to test functionality just like do the patient instructions show up in the proper language? Do we offer the languages that we signed up for or contracted um, to receive so that I do have patient instructions in Spanish or Korean or Tagalog that populate into the after visit summary? So these are all things that the average person does not tend to think of, but you have to try to break the system. And I think that's probably what comes to the front of my mind in terms of user acceptance testing or usability testing is just, can I break it? Does it make sense? Is it logical or intuitive in terms of how I'm using it? I would compare it to almost, I downloaded an app onto my iPhone and I shouldn't have to look at four or five screens of, this is how you use this application. I just rather intuitively just figure it out and say, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I don't need a manual. I think whatever, uh, EHR system you're using, it should make sense. The layout should be logical so that you're able to piece together without much training and use the system effectively. I think we're a little weak on this in healthcare and it's because we don't have those usability experts throughout an organization. Someone who has an eye for watching a clinician use the tool and say, hey, there's too many buttons on the screen. We gave them too many choices. We need to declutter. We need to decrease scrolling. I don't see that routinely. I think this is something that's cleanup that happens on the back end if you're lucky. And it's just it's a difficult skill that not every think about this. We have to have that skill for all the different workflows that are out there. Cardiology, GYN, nursing, it's too much. It's not possible to do it all. But as much as you can get done, it's easier to fix it ahead of time than it is once you're gone live. That's my two Agreed. Sense. And, you know, when studying for the clinical informatics boards, you start learning about heuristics and functional design and all these sorts of terms that are typically more scholarly or academic. But 
I'd have to argue there is a role for a heuristics type of expert to be on an informatics team at any organization to look at whatever you're building, whatever you're implementing, and figure out, does this have a high chance of success? What are the chances that your average end user is going to be able to understand and adopt this and say, yeah, this is logical. This makes sense. This is intuitive. So Eric, I'm going to ask you just one more question, I think, before we wrap up this segment of the episode. We will, hopefully I can get you back to talk about training and the actual go live and optimization that happens afterwards. But just to wrap this one here, what about all the data that was in the legacy EHR that providers want? There's good data in there still, hopefully, that they want to look at. How do you handle that piece prior to go live in terms of, are you trying to import as much from the old system as possible, or are you just giving them a window into it, a portal to go look at? How do you recommend this gets handled? So I think you need to talk with your HIM department and um, your legal team and just make sure you understand what those requirements are in terms of how far you go back. In our organization, I think it was determined we wanted to go back to 2009, which was when we had implemented our legacy system. So we, it was pretty clear cut that we had to go 10 years back. I think the very minimum is that you need to go back at least seven years, but it may be that you may want to go back further so that if you have patients that were children and then become adults and want to have their childhood records, you have that available and accessible as part of a records request from the patient perspective to HIM. I think you also need to think about what are some of the requirements for selecting an archival system. I think it was interesting in our organization, I'll just give you an example. We have a dental department that needed tooth charts to be archived. And our first vendor actually didn't work Uh, because they had promised they could get the tooth charts into the legacy system and uh, into the archival system, and it just didn't end up working out. Uh, So we had to choose a different vendor, and we've actually gone live, and we have extended read-only access for the legacy vendor to all clinical users for now while we're getting the archival project completed, hopefully by the end of this year so that we are able to transition to our data archival solution. The other thing would be with the archival solution, when you're shopping, you wanna see if you can preserve that single sign-on so that you're able to launch that archival solution directly from the patient chart and you don't have to log in again, then you may have to pay a little extra for it, but I think it's very uh, well worth it in the long run. If there's anyone who has seen or done this really well, love to hear from you. Getting information from the legacy EMR into your current EMR has never gone as smooth as we would like. Different data models and matching the patients, it's been a challenge anywhere I've seen it. So hey, if you're out there and you've nailed this one, you got to speak up. So Eric, I want to let you go because I promised to get you out on time here and I'd love to get you back one day. I guess for the meantime, if people had questions about what we've said so far, is there any way that they can reach you? Yes, I'm available on LinkedIn. Perfect. 
Well, and thank you once again for, for coming on the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Dr. Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode. Thank you.